Live by the code, die by the code. When I think of adherence to the code, the one group that comes to mind is pirates. <laughs> Captain Hook, Long John Silver, One-Eyed Willie, Captain Jack Sparrow. Pirates have captured the imagination of many in years past and still today. Pirates have been around pretty much as long as there's been trade via the sea. And pirates are still around today, mainly on the Atlantic near Africa. Although they don't use cannons and swords, they use automatic weapons and grenade launchers. But when you and I think of pirates, you probably think of pirates from the golden age of piracy. And this lasted from about 1650 to 1730 and took place in, as you would probably guess, the Caribbean Sea. Now, the beginning of European colonialism in the Western Hemisphere meant that there was more goods traveling via sea across the Atlantic than ever before. And so you had these different European countries competing for power in the New World. And so what would happen is England, the Netherlands, and the French would all team up to gang up on the Spaniards. And they would recruit these sort of mercenaries, these privateers who became known as buccaneers to raid these Spanish ships for their goods. Well, when the Spanish finally lost a lot of their power in the Caribbean, you had this vacuum that was filled by more pirates. These buccaneers and all these sailors were now unemployed, but they were well-trained, and there were still plenty of goods to be had via ship. So pirates like Henry Morgan, William Captain Kidd, Bartholomew Roberts, and Edward Blackbeard Thatch wrecked havoc on the Caribbean Sea and beyond. Though we often think of pirates as sort of dirty, lawless, vulgar, you know, one eye patch and a peg leg kind of guys. But their codes, barbaric at some points, yes, their codes even had some early forms of Western democracy. Indeed, the pirate code is one of the things pirates are most famous for. To join a crew, a pirate had to sign the code. To sign the code meant that they agreed to the terms of the ship and the terms of the captain. Some of the basic terms from codes included keeping your gun always clean and ready in case anything should happen. Or having a curfew, you've got to be asleep by 10. Or a prohibition against gambling on the ship. A prohibition against fighting on the ship. Signing the code also meant that the crew member had certain rights, such as a right to vote for the commanding officers or certain affairs that the ship may have. A right to a certain share of the booty. And a right of compensation if injured. Signing the code. Perhaps the biggest deal about it was the loyalty oath or the oath of allegiance. Signing the code and joining the crew meant you didn't desert the crew. You didn't keep secrets from the crew. 
and you didn't defraud the crew in any way. Breaking the loyalty oath was punishable by death or marooning on an island. And so to remind the crew members of the continual binding nature of the pirate code, the captain would nail it to some prominent place on the ship and it'd have all the names of the men who agreed to it. So most Christians are very clear of when they entered their relationship with God and thus brought into God's family, God's crew. They repented of their sin and they trusted Christ in faith. However, many are aimless or misguided in how they are to continue in their Christian life. What we see at this point in Galatians is that Paul is continuing to prove that justification is by faith and not works. But he also reminds the Galatians that progress in the Christian life comes through the same way, faith and not works. So we approach chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. You'll find it in your bulletin. The word of God reads, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Would you join me in prayer? Oh God, please Bless the preaching of your word. May what is said this morning be faithful to what you have said in your word. Mold our hearts, shape our hearts into the image of Christ. And make your glory known among us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The main point of this passage, and the main point, therefore, of this sermon, is that the Christian life is by grace through faith from start to finish. The Christian life is by grace through faith from start to finish. It's as if Paul expounds on the point he made in chapter 2, verse 20. He says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And so he's going to do this in two sections. First, he's going to remind the Galatians of how they began in verses 1 to 2. Then he's going to show how they continue and why they should continue that way in verses 3 to 5. He's going to remind how they began, and he's going to show them how they are to continue. So in these verses, Paul is appealing to the experience of the Galatians. And we remember that in the first two chapters of this book, he's giving an autobiographical defense of the gospel that he preaches. So in chapter 1, he shows that there is no other gospel beside the gospel of grace, that salvation is a gift, And he shows that he received the gospel directly 
from God, not dependent on the teaching of others or distorted from the teaching of others. In chapter 2, Paul shows that the gospel he preaches, the one true gospel, is indeed the same gospel as the Jerusalem apostles preach. How does he prove this? Well, he tells them of a trip he made, made to Jerusalem 14 years after his conversion. And two things happened during this trip. The first is that his Gentile colleague, Titus, was not forced to be circumcised to be among the people of God. Secondly, Paul lays out the gospel he preaches to the Gentiles before Peter, James, and John. And they give their full-fledged approval. They give him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, affirming that the gospel he preaches is the gospel, the same gospel they preach. But Paul switches gears again in chapter 2, verse 11, in order to show that the gospel has ultimate authority in the church. Authority even above men of stature, like Peter. Do we remember what happened with Peter? Peter, knowing that the gospel freed him from the condemnation of the law, ate with the Gentiles. But when other men showed up, he was fearful of the circumcision party. And so he withdrew from eating with the Gentiles. Paul rebukes Peter for this. His rebuke lasts from verse 14 to verse 21. And he calls Peter out on his, hip, his hypocrisy. By doing this, Peter was communicating that the Gentiles were required to live like Jews. The Gentiles were required to do this, but Peter himself was fine with living like Gentiles. He was inconsistent. And Paul continues by laying out the actual gospel he has been defending. He reminds Peter and the other Jewish Christians that just because they inherited the law of God does not mean that they are intrinsically any better off than the Gentiles. Why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says, by the works of the law, all the requirements of the Old Testament law, no man shall be justified. No man shall earn a good declaration from God. We said, indeed, that justification is a judicial term. A judge doesn't make somebody righteous or, or guilty. He declares someone righteous or guilty. So what is the gospel then? The gospel is that sinners are justified by faith. This means that even though that we have disobeyed, even though that we cannot attain to God's perfect standard, there's someone that has obeyed that there's someone who has met that perfect standard and that that someone died the death that we deserved, not only lived the life that we should have, so that by faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who did this, we are united to him and to his work, his righteousness, his death in our place, and his resurrection to bring us new life. So that by faith, United to him, we have justification, that righteous declaration before God. 
This is the gospel. And Paul says that reverting back to the law as a standard of justification, as a way to get that righteous declaration, is is foolish because reverting back to the law only shows how much you break the law, how much of a sinner that you actually are, how much you really can't earn your justification. Moreover, if we could contribute anything to our salvation, Paul says in 221, if we could contribute anything, Christ died needlessly. However, Christ has freed us from the condemnation of the law. But he's not only given us a new legal standing, not just that righteous declaration, but he's also won us a new character. Being united to Christ by faith, we are united to his death and his resurrection. The life we now live is indwelled with the Holy Spirit and marked by faith in the Son of God. So as we will see, this is the point Paul's going to expand upon in these verses. So by the time we hit Galatians 3, he's done with his autobiographical defense. And now he transitions to a theological defense of the gospel. And he begins by appealing to the experience of the Galatians. And he's going to continue as we'll see next week, by appealing to Old Testament Scripture. So Paul's reminding them of their beginning. He's reminding them of their beginning. And first, the first part of that reminder is what Paul presented to them. What Paul presented to them. And the second part is how they responded. What Paul presented to them and how they responded. And Paul wraps this whole reminder in a certain tone. And he lays it on pretty thick. He calls them foolish. And he does this twice. And he asks, who has bewitched you? I don't know about you, but foolish Galatians is a long way from calling them brothers back in chapter 1, verse 2. It's a reminder that even the people you're closest to at one point, you, you have terms of endearment for them, and at another point, you can love them by calling them a knucklehead. Foolish Galatians. The Phillips Bible translates this verse. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, surely you can't be so idiotic. That was more of a dynamic equivalent than a word-for-word translation, but it, it heightens the point Paul's trying to make. Paul is trying to snap them out of it. Have you ever had to have someone do that to you? Just snap out of it. In the movies, you'll normally see someone do this by slapping somebody on the face or pouring a bucket of cold water on them. And this is sort of what Paul's doing with this tone. Why does he call them foolish? It's because they have lost sight of the cross. It's the same theme of chapter 1, verse 6. The false teaching of the Judaizers that the works of the law are necessary for a good standing with God, that false teaching has bewitched them. The word bewitch literally means to exert an evil influence through the eye. To exert an evil influence through the eye. 
with so much emphasis on obedience, they began to lose sight of the necessity of the cross. So how does Paul call them back from the evil influence that has been exerted through the eye? Well, he reminds them of the gospel presentation that was seen before their eyes, he says. As the Galatians began to question the necessity of the cross, Paul takes them back to the cross. And what was it that was publicly portrayed before them? What does verse 1 say? Jesus Christ as crucified. This is what Paul presented to them. And we can learn three things from this reminder of Paul's presentation. The first is that we learn the significance of the actual preaching event. This is what Paul refers back to. Paul, all, all Paul had was words, nothing fancy. He preached to them words. But these words were the words of the gospel and the words of the scripture. And therefore, these are the words of God. And this runs parallel to the experience he had in the city of Thessalonica. He writes in 1 Thessalonians 2.13 that the believers there did what? Received the word of God, which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God. So Paul's reminding them of the preaching event, and he's reminding them of how they began But in Paul's presentation, not only do we learn of the significance of the actual preaching event, we learn of the content of what was preached. And what was preached, we learn of the centrality of the cross, the centrality of the cross. This is Paul's aim whenever he preaches. His goal when he preached was not that people would leave and be impressed with Paul. Say, man, did you hear that guy? How eloquent he was? Paul's goal whenever he preached was that people would be impressed with Christ. He communicates the same centrality of the cross in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says the word of the cross is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.23, he says that he preaches Christ crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2, he said, He has decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The centrality of the cross. 1 Corinthians 15 also teaches the importance of the resurrection. That without the resurrection, without the resurrection our faith is useless. But to get to the resurrection, we must first go to the cross. So Paul's presentation to the Galatians of Jesus Christ crucified. The third thing we learned from it was the actual nature of it. What was this presentation? It wasn't an instruction. It wasn't 12 secrets to unlock your untapped potential. This presentation was an announcement. Before it was a command of how to respond. It was an announcement of what Jesus has done before an instruction of what we must do. Notice, furthermore, that the word 
crucified is in the perfect tense. The perfect tense. This communicates a completed event that has lasting results. Jesus Christ as crucified. Now what other event in human history could be better described as the perfect tense? A completed event with continue and eternal results. So stepping back and look, looking at what Paul presented to the Galatians. Paul's reminder of how they began and what he preached to them. We remind ourselves that we are not beyond being bewitched. The word says that it comes from an evil influence. And the evil one, Jesus says, is the father of all lies and loves to distort the truth in any way that he can. Let us then be on guard against laxity, against ignorance, seeking to grow in knowledge and wisdom of the word. And even Paul's tone and rebuke of the Galatians reminds us how important it is to have one another, that sheep should stay together. Stepping back and looking at what Paul presented to the Galatians, we also see the content of what we preach, that it remains the same today, Jesus Christ crucified. However, the content doesn't matter if we don't do it. To give a portrayal of the gospel, you have to use words at some point. You have to speak. Paul's reminder of their beginning does not end with reminding them that he presented the gospel to them. His reminder of their beginning is all the more meaningful because of how they responded to what he preached. How did they respond? They responded by hearing with faith. And then they received the Spirit. The Galatians were able to question whether or not they were really justified, whether or not they had that full, righteous declaration before God. But Paul kind of takes the back door here. And he appeals to something that apparently that they couldn't dispute, which was that they were indwelled with the Holy Spirit. They know this happened, but the question is, When did it happen? So Paul, appealing to the Holy Spirit, tells us that the Galatians were familiar with who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does. Thus, before answering, when does the Holy Spirit indwell a person, it's worth it for us to remind ourselves to review who the Holy Spirit is and what is it he does. Notice the pronouns I'm using there. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. One God and three distinct yet united persons. And in the work of salvation, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior, and the Father and the Son together sent the Spirit to to convert the sinner. This is the work of regeneration, what we read in John 3, that Jesus said you must be born of the Spirit And after the work of regeneration, the Holy Spirit then indwells believers. 1 Corinthians 6 says that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. 
This indwelling was promised in times past in places like Ezekiel 36. This indwelling shows that we are in the new age of grace that extends beyond Israel. Peter shows this in Acts 2 in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. This indwelling is the sign of who the people of God are. Finally, this indwelling, Ephesians 1.14, says that it is the guarantee, the guarantee of our eternal inheritance. So we see who this Holy Spirit is, third member of the Trinity. We see what he does, that he regenerates and that he indwells. And we see how significant the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is. But when does this indwelling happen? That's what Paul's trying to answer. Is it like the state of nirvana when you've done all these personal projects and you finally made it and you finally arrive and all of a sudden you get this reward? Is it by the works of the law? No. This is wrong theologically. And this is wrong, the Galatians knew, experientially. The The Holy Spirit indwells a person upon hearing with faith upon hearing with faith. What is it that they heard? Verse 1. Jesus Christ crucified. It was then that they heard and responded in faith, which we defined last week as trust and a complete personal commitment, faith into Christ. It was when they responded with faith that the Holy Spirit's indwelling became evident. All right, so if this is true, if this is when it happens, this is when the Holy Spirit indwells a a person, then what's, what's the big deal? What's the point? What does this show us? First, if the Holy Spirit indwells a person upon faith, and if the Holy Spirit is the sign of the people of God, and the people of God are those who have been justified, who have that righteous declaration, Then, if they receive the Spirit upon their faith, they also receive their justification upon faith. Just like the indwelling of the Holy Spirit wasn't earned, neither was their justification. This is the argument Paul's trying to make. That the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and justification have the same pathway. Faith in the Son of God. So if the Holy Spirit indwells upon responding to the gospel in faith, then the new birth must be directly related to believing the gospel. The Spirit works through the word. It is his sword. It is how Jesus can say that you must be born of the Spirit, and it is how Paul can say in Romans 1.16 that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The Spirit works the word through the preaching of the gospel. This means that all who have genuine faith in Christ have the Spirit upon their profession of faith. If the Holy Spirit indwells upon responding to the gospel with faith, then no one who does not believe has the Holy Spirit. This goes against a belief called inclusivism. That the Holy Spirit applies 
the work of Christ to those who haven't responded to the gospel. That's not the reality. That's not what Scripture testifies. The Holy Spirit works through the gospel, not apart from it. So this is the Galatians' beginning. What Paul presented to them, the gospel, and how they responded by faith and received the Holy Spirit. That they received the Holy Spirit upon faith, they were justified upon faith. This is their beginning. And friends, if you are in Christ this morning, this is your beginning. You heard the gospel, and you responded by repentance and faith, and thus indwelled with the Holy Spirit. But the matter wasn't completely settled yet. Even though Paul calls the Galatians foolish, he nonetheless labels them as Christians. He says that they have heard with faith that they have responded, that they have believed, that they have begun in the Spirit. However, why are they still foolish? They are foolish because they are deserting the way that, be, that they began. Will they be perfected or completed, Paul asks in verse 3, by the flesh, by their own human efforts? Or will they continue by the Spirit working through faith in the Son of God? Paul argues for the latter. And it is important to see why laying out their beginning is important to proving his point. So we remember that the Galatians are Christians. They have begun in the Spirit. They have heard with faith. But they were confused in thinking they could somehow earn a better justification that they could somehow progressively earn it through their own works. So if you are in Christ, your good standing before God is settled because Christ's work is finished. So we remember the perfect tense, right? It is a completed action. If we are in Christ, we do not complete what is lacking or attain to some higher level of justification. The verdict's been declared. Our justification is based solely on Christ's work and not our own. So by going to the works of the flesh, the Galatians were communicating that Christ isn't enough and that they could add to his work. But if this is the case, that justification's forever settled, that the verdict's been declared righteous in Christ. Now what? Well, progress. Progress in sanctification. That is our setting apart. That is our actual holiness. Progress in sanctification, not our justification, our already declared righteous. Our progress in sanctification comes from the Spirit working through faith. The path of sanctification is the same as the path of justification, believing, not doing. More precisely, those who believe will do. And that's an important distinction, isn't it? Paul's not saying that doing is unimportant. He'll come later in chapter 5 and talk of faith 
working through love. Faith working through love. And later in that chapter, he's going to lay out the fruits of the Spirit. But to produce good fruit, you have to be connected to good roots. But this doesn't mean that doing is not important. What it does mean is that moving forward in faith is that we never leave our justification behind. We never leave our justification behind. It's something we nail to a prominent place. Most Christians know that they have been saved and they can point to a time when they first believed, when they first heard the gospel, and they first responded to it. However, their justification has little bearing on their day-to-day life. They think, okay, now that I'm saved, I'm kind of on my own for holiness and just do it whatever way that I can. So I'll cherry-pick a few Bible verses here and there, see if I can apply them to my life. I'll just evoke sheer willpower to try to grow. And sometimes I'll ask God simply to remove whatever struggle with sin I'm having. What many don't realize is that while God promises growth, he promises to complete the good work that he started in us. He works through the Spirit as we have faith in the Son of God. What does this mean practically? It means that we have to deal with growth and change beneath the surface level and apply the gospel to all areas of life. Deal with growth and change beneath the surface level. And this is just against our nature. We want to grow through elbow grease just by trying harder. However, we must realize that the growth is deeper than mere external actions. Jesus said that our external actions come from what is in our hearts. An example, Matthew 15, 18. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. This is what defiles a man. So think of a Christian as a tree or a plant with one main taproot. The taproot determines the identity of the tree or the plant. You kill the taproot, you kill the plant. For the Christian, that taproot is the cross. When the Christian obeys, he is acting according to what is most true about him. However, along with the taproot, there are other smaller roots that seek life outside of the taproot. When nutrients go up through these external roots, what do they produce? Bad fruit. They produce sin. And how do you deal with bad fruit? You can't just merely pluck it from the tree. It's going to keep coming back. We have to remove the roots that are seeking life outside of the taproot. That is how we keep going. How do you do this? You ask yourself, where are we seeking life outside of the cross? 
Where are we seeking life outside of the cross? If you have an anger problem, if you've got a lust problem, if you've got a contentment problem, I don't care what struggle with sin you have, we must go beyond just looking at the bad fruit and ask ourselves, what is it that I think I need in order to feel complete? What is it that I think I need in order to have worth? What is it that I think I need in order to have hope? What is it that I think I need in order to have acceptance? Any answer, friends, besides Jesus Christ and him crucified reveals what your functional Savior is. We must ask God to help us repent in the power of the Spirit and orient our hearts back to faith in the gospel. This is what it means to have begun by the Spirit and to continue in the Spirit by faith. So I used to, and probably still do, more than I'm aware, struggle with competitiveness. And this especially came out while I was either playing uh, dodgeball or, or baseball. Now, I, I could have a bad game, maybe a strikeout or two or three, uh, an error, a rough pitching outing, and it would just affect me immensely. And I couldn't leave my frustration on the field either. At times, I get angry and frustrated. And when that lasted longer than one game, I'd get almost sad and depressed. You know, baseball being the sport where if you fail 70% of the time, you're a great player. And the fact that I played it so often only increased this feeling. Now, I could have just stopped playing baseball. Sometimes restrictions are necessary. If you have something that causes you to sin, sometimes we need to put restrictions on ourselves. But even when we do this, we can't do it without examining our hearts. We can't do it without digging beneath the surface. I was so invested in seeking life on the field through success on the field, that it was affecting my life off of the field. I saw the success of other players and I desired it. It was a means to impress. It was a means to gain acceptance. And it made me terrified of failure. I found myself saying that, oh, I struck out and I'm mad. It was deeper than that. I found myself saying that it's just a game ultimately wasn't very much solace. Real and meaningful change didn't happen until I asked myself how my reactions and how my feelings were contrary to my identity in Christ. I can play hard and strive for excellence without baseball being central to my life. And friends, it is unbelievably freeing And this is just a small example. But it is unbelievably freeing when we realize that ultimate worth, that ultimate hope, that ultimate acceptance is not based on our performance. But it is based on Christ. And it's secure in him. 
This is what makes continuing the same way we began good news. If we just put away our justification after we were saved, we would be saved to a terribly insecure life. And unfortunately, this is how many Christians live. They live as that if their acceptance, if their worth, if their value, if their hope is based on their sincerity, their good works, the bad things they don't do. If we base any of these things ultimately on ourselves rather than Christ, those feelings of acceptance and worth and hope, they won't last. You see, then justification is a practical doctrine. It is how we continue in the Christian life because justification lasts. It frees us from the shaky foundation and places us on the rock of Christ. And now we are empowered by the Spirit to follow him. Freed and empowered to follow Christ in faith. And the Galatians knew what this was like. They knew what it was like to walk by faith in Christ, in the power of the Spirit. As they did, verses 4 and 5 say, they endured suffering. And God performed great things through them. It'd be foolish for them and for us to begin to live by doing, to rely on that, rather than to walk in faith in Christ. So I think of Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a Chicago lawyer who lost his four-year-old son in the great Chicago fire of 1871. Two years later, he wanted to go on a trip to Europe, take the rest of his family, and go to England. So the, the family arrived in New York to depart over the Atlantic. But Spafford, being a successful lawyer, was held back by business. And he told his family, just go on ahead of me, and I'll meet you there. He sent his wife and his four daughters along ahead. And on the ship's journey, it collided with another vessel. Of the 247 on board, only 47 survived. Spafford lost all of the remaining of his children, all four of his daughters. And his wife, who survived, told him when she reached England, And as soon as he heard, he boarded the next ship. And the captain told him when they were crossing over where the ship had sunk. And it was that moment he went back to his room and he found solace in the will of God, saying this in my prayer, in his prayer, it is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. This is the magnificent hymn he would go on to write. The second and third stanza from it. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole 
is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford didn't deny the reality or the pain of suffering. God doesn't want us to do that. Instead, he endured this suffering through faith in the Son of God, in the power of the Spirit. And think of the great work of God that God has done through Horatio Spafford's faith. Think of how many millions of people have worshipped the Lord through that magnificent hymn. I have weeped over that hymn. So this is how God sustains us. This is how God grows us. He does it the same way he saved us by faith in the Son of God. That's the way we began, and that's the way we keep going. Let's pray. Oh God, we realize that we so often underestimate your grace. And Lord, we do not fully comprehend how awesome and how amazing it really is. And we thank you that justification is secure. Bind our hearts to it, Lord. Root us in the security that is won for us in Jesus. Remove all the things that we are seeking life in besides the cross. Jesus, keep us near the cross. There, a precious fountain. And let us live with the blessed assurance that our acceptance is one, that we have worth, that we have hope, secure forever. Ever. Let us live in the power of the Spirit by faith in the Son of God. And it is his name we pray. Amen.